This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. This is not the future my mother warned me about. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. As the world rocks to war and economic turmoil, humans continue to pour more and more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. The International Energy Agency reported world emissions from burning fossil fuels reached a new record in 2021. Emissions increased an astounding 6%, overcoming the previous smaller reduction in 2020 due to the COVID pandemic. Any hope for survival begins when we face the truth. Despite all the blah, blah, blah and green promises, we are ratcheting up the climate crisis with the most pollution in history. And the sad news is that the burst of new carbon came mainly from increasing coal for electricity and industry. The IEA says, quote, Coal accounted for over 40% of the overall growth in global CO2 emissions in 2021, reaching an all-time high of 15.3 billion tons. CO2 emissions from natural gas rebounded well above their 2019 level to 7.5 billion tons, At 10.7 billion tons, CO2 emissions from oil remained significantly below pre-pandemic levels because of the limited recovery in global transport activity in 2021, mainly in the aviation sector. However, energy from renewables hit an all-time high, small as that is. That high mark comes despite overall losses of hydropower due to drought, mainly in the United States and Brazil. Drought? I wonder why that's becoming so common. The world's upside down, isn't it? It's all run by complete madmen and idiots. And uh, basically men who don't know what they're doing. They're just stuffing their pockets. China was the world leader in new coal use and emissions. In 2021, China experienced its single biggest demand for electricity, growing 10% in one year. Despite installing massive wind and solar farms, China had to fill the new demand with coal and lots of it. India did the same, without doing much on renewable energy there. Emissions are slowly dropping in the United States, down 4% in 2021. The European Union dropped 2.4%, and Japan is down about 2% from 2019 levels. So the trajectory there is slightly better, but it means those countries continue to add gigatons of new greenhouse gases every year. We are still accelerating into the climate crisis. The government has been uh, putting loads of money into fighting terrorism, but they don't seem to be putting any real effort or money into the one really great emergency and threat that is coming. We have a cooked world. As a result, Earth is developing into the home of extreme wildfires. You're about to hear scientist Peter Bernath from Canada and Andrew Sullivan in Australia. But first, let's set the stage. The United States agency NOAA predicts a dry spring, heat, and continuing drought for most of the western U.S. This adds water stress to low reservoirs, hardship for natural species, and all the right conditions for another bad wildfire season in the west. Most of Texas did not green up this spring, leaving a heavy fire fuel load in the continuing drought there. Texas authorities set the fire risk to the highest level. People in the eastern United States and parts of Europe find fire hard to worry about, I know that. 
After a storm-laden spring with whiplash between Arctic cold and abnormal hot spells, people in the East may be glad to see a few dry days. But very large fires affect everyone, everywhere. Wildfire smoke can travel hundreds of miles, affecting people's health in cities far away. Smoke from California and Oregon was tracked in New England last year. Indonesian fires traveled across the sea to blanket other countries like Malaysia and Singapore. Globally, over 30,000 people die directly from fire smoke every year. And so we noticed all of these unprecedented changes in the stratosphere. That is, things like hydrochloric acid going down, ozone going down, and so on. And they have been induced by smoke. And so this hasn't been seen before. So somehow, a new, new chemistry caused by smoke particles in the stratosphere uh, was observed by us. But now, in a new interview, we learn extreme wildfires also damage the ozone layer high in the stratosphere. Atmospheric scientist Peter Bernath reports changes in the stratosphere never seen before after the black summer fires in Australia in 2019 and 2020. Smoke from extreme wildfires acts to cool the world temporarily. Could back-to-back superfire years be hiding the true warming of the world? Are we still shielded from our impacts, even as we experience record-setting heat already? So according to the new report, there will be 30% more extreme fires by 2050 because of climate change. Our second guest, Dr. Andrew Sullivan from CISRO, he outlines the latest wildfire assessment from UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program. As expected, with warming, some regions will get wetter. But global wildfires, especially the most extreme fires, will increase with every decade, they say, as we continue to pour greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Superfires are already here. They create their own weather, rapid updrafts of pyrocumulonimbus clouds, like superheated vertical winds, puncture the troposphere boundary and they arrive in the stratosphere. In the high stratosphere, these newly understood fire particles spread around the world for a year or more. That temporarily adds a cooling against our heating trend. With greenhouse gas pollution, we change everything, all the way to the outer layers of the Earth's atmosphere, to the very borders of space. Extreme wildfires will increase as the planet warms up, the IPCC tells us. New research shows an unexpected twist. These fires are changing chemistry in the upper atmosphere. The impacts can influence global temperatures and damage the ozone shield, protecting us from harmful radiation arriving from space. Peter Bernath is the research professor at the University of Waterloo and principal investigator for the Atmospheric Chemistry Experiment, or ACE. His team uses the Canadian satellite called SISAT, and ground measurements. Dr. Bernath got his Ph.D. at MIT and has lectured at universities in Florida and Arizona. He is also an eminent scholar at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. From Waterloo, Canada, Peter Bernath, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Glad to be here. Your latest paper title is Wildfire Smoke Destroys Stratospheric Ozone. What was your test fire to reach that conclusion? So we're making measurements now for many years. In fact, we have 18 years of atmospheric measurements. And so 
we've been looking in recent years at aerosol spectra, so sulfate aerosols and uh, fire spectra and uh, volcanic eruptions, ash, and so on. And so when we looked at the fire spectra, we were able to get some unique features. And we looked at the Australian fires uh, in 2020, and we noticed these coincident in time changes in ozone and in the composition of the stratosphere. So our mission, this CISAT or ACE, is uniquely able to measure some 44, more than 44 uh, molecules in the atmosphere. So we're able to get a very good idea about atmospheric composition, about, in particular in the stratosphere. And so we noticed all of these unprecedented changes in the stratosphere, that is, things like hydrochloric acid going down, ozone going down, and so on. And they have been induced by smoke. And so this hasn't been seen before. So somehow a new, new chemistry caused by smoke particles in the stratosphere uh, was observed by us. When I was reporting on explosions at nuclear reactors in Fukushima, Japan, in 2011, we learned radioactivity only becomes global if it reaches beyond the troposphere up to the stratosphere. Is that true of smoke particles as well? Pretty much. Once the smoke particles get into the stratosphere, the stratospheric circulation spreads it around the globe. The smoke particles in the troposphere, there's a lot of weather and rain and pretty well things get rained out. Although, of course, they can circulate over a long distance uh, as well. But by and large, once they're in the stratosphere, the tropopause acts as a kind of a barrier and things then rapidly move around the globe. So, you know, in a couple of weeks, something in the stratosphere will come and go totally around uh, and come back to where it started from. Peter, please tell us about pyrocumulonimbus clouds. What are they? Can we see them from the ground? And how do they compare to clouds formed, say, by nuclear, uh, by volcanic eruptions, I mean? So you can certainly see them from the ground. Uh, there are these spectacular fires, and in the States they were seen in California this past summer. They had a lot of pyro CBs there. Uh, and so they're nothing more than huge fires, mega fires, and things get so hot that the air gets lofted rapidly up over a very wide area, and the vertical motion is so powerful that it punches into the stratosphere. In fact, it changes the local weather. It's so strong. And these pyro-CBs have just been recognized in the last 10 years or so and studied. So they're a relatively new phenomenon. But certainly, of course, they occurred before then. Uh, but their frequency has been increasing. Uh, they can certainly be seen from the ground. There are these spectacular pictures that you see where the whole horizon is on fire. And you can see them from airplanes and you can see them from satellites. So they're, they're nothing more than enormous fires. They do have analogies with volcanic eruptions in that they inject soot. Um, well, volcanic eruptions inject ash and sulfur dioxide, which ends up making aerosols in the stratosphere. But both cause aerosols to be injected into the stratosphere, and both of them cause the surface to cool by reflecting and scattering sunlight, and they cause the stratosphere to warm because they absorb radiation in the stratosphere, and so they heat the stratosphere slightly. So there are analogies between the two. You describe in the paper the high-level smoke particles as acidic hydrated soot, 
What does your new paper tell us about them? Well, they've never actually been studied by spectroscopy before. So we're really the first group to take spectra of smoke particles in the stratosphere. And it's from the spectrum of these smoke particles that we see uh, water features on the surface of the, of the particles, and we see features associated with carboxylic acids. So we have some indication that these surfaces must be acidic and, have, and be hydrated. And these really are the first results for these stratospheric smoke particles that, that show that. And it seems to be universal. So we have spectra of particles recorded in the Northeast uh, United States and uh, Canada from those fires from a few years ago, and they look very similar. So there's some characteristic stratospheric smoke that we've been able to identify. Did the Australian bushfires of 2019 and 20 affect the size of the ozone hole over Antarctica? No, there's no connection. It turns out that the effect that we saw was at mid-latitudes in the southern hemisphere, and it never made it to the Antarctic. And in fact, the Antarctic ozone hole that year seems to be unaffected by these fires. Although some of the aerosol particles seem to have gotten down there, but it doesn't seem to have have had a big effect on the Antarctic ozone hole. And you also found wildfire smoke-affected levels of nitrogen dioxide in the atmosphere. Is that the same as the warming gas nitrous oxide? And if so, how does wildfire smoke affect that particular warming gas? Do you know? Yeah. So nitrous oxide, or laughing gas, is formed on the surface of the Earth from microorganisms, from nitrification and denitrification, and it's inert uh, in the troposphere. But in the stratosphere, it gets dissociated. Well, it actually reacts with oxygen atoms and makes uh, NO, and then that gets oxidized to um, uh, nitrogen dioxide. So the nitrous oxide, the N2O, is the source for the NO2 in the stratosphere. And in fact, it is one of the major, if you like, natural depleters of ozone. So NO2 uh, reacts with ozone, or NO from NO2 reacts with ozone, and uh, causes ozone declines in the stratosphere. But that's a natural effect, if you like. So, uh, you know, the the N2O from the microorganisms ends up making the NO2 in the stratosphere. And the N2O is a greenhouse gas in the troposphere, but as I said, it falls apart in the stratosphere and becomes an ozone depleter, if you like, in the stratosphere. And all these particles are going up into the air. Some of them reflect the sun back into space, and, and I gather that the short-term effect can be global cooling. Is that correct? That's correct. So both volcanic eruptions and the fires cool the surface of the Earth. Interestingly, they also warm the stratosphere slightly because, uh, you know, the soot is black and so it absorbs sunlight. And so in addition to absorbing and scattering the sunlight and cooling the surface, it slightly warms the stratosphere. Peter Bernath, your research finds the major concern about wildfire changes to the stratosphere is damage to the protective ozone shield could you explain the importance of that and, in layman's terms, how that happens? Yes, it's quite straightforward because the radiation in the UV uh, is damaging to humans. And 
causes skin cancer, and normally the ozone in the stratosphere blocks that part of the UV radiation. And so if the ozone disappears or declines, more UV radiation gets to the ground, causes more skin cancer, and damages people's health, basically. And so the ozone layer really makes life possible on Earth. Life as we know it can't exist on Earth uh, without the ozone layer. So anything that damages the ozone layer is not good for us, Uh, not just humans, but all all, um, organisms. And the Montreal Protocol was aimed at healing holes in the atmospheric ozone, and the hope of the protocol was to restore the ozone layer by the middle of this century. Does your work suggest this could be more difficult or even impossible because extreme fires will continue to damage the ozone? Well, I don't think it makes it impossible, but it certainly doesn't help. Uh, So, you know, predicting the future is always a difficult business, and we're not in that game. But uh, certainly this decreases the amount of ozone, uh, and that doesn't help in the recovery of the ozone layer. But the fires themselves, I should point out, the smoke, it's a transient effect. So it lasted for about a year year from the Australian fire. So by the end of 2020, the ozone had recovered back to its uh, previous value. And so it's not a permanent effect. Uh, And so in that sense, it's not as damaging as the CFCs at the Montreal Protocol is successfully controlling, by the way. That was illuminating. I appreciate it. You know, one question I didn't ask you that I am interested in is is whether the carbon that's released from wildfires is likely to cause some short-term warming in the sense that how far does it go up into the atmosphere? How long does it stay up there? And is it going to be an impact? Yeah, well, I can tell you what happens to the carbon. Okay. It gets oxidized uh, by OH to make CO2. So it ends up being CO2. A little bit settles back down through the tropopause and ends back on the ground in that form. But it, it really gets oxidized. So this carboxylic acid that I was talking about, that's, I think, a step in the oxidation of the soot in the stratosphere because things last a long time in the stratosphere. And so in the end, the carbon gets oxidized and doesn't disappear. It just transforms into carbon dioxide. So when we talk about global warming, are we talking about something that is happening in the troposphere or something that is happening in the stratosphere? Well, interestingly, global warming is really on the surface because the temperature of the surface is going up. You know, that's what people care about. However, in the rest of the atmosphere, in particular the upper atmosphere, a little higher in the stratosphere, mesosphere, and definitely in the thermosphere, So the signature of global warming, if you like, is it gets hotter on the surface and colder higher up. And the reason for that is is pretty simple. The main gas is carbon dioxide, and once it gets up high, the atmosphere essentially becomes sort of optically thin. And so the radiation from CO2 that's emitted just goes out to space. And there's more CO2, so therefore more radiation escapes the space and the upper atmosphere actually cools. And that's a surprise to some people, uh, but that's sort of radiative transfer. But the CO2 on the ground, that's the greenhouse effect, where the CO2 absorbs the radiation and then thermally emits it, and most of that gets blocked because it's optically thick. 
and it ends up being reflected back on the ground. So like a, you know, a greenhouse glass pane, the radiation gets trapped in the surface by the CO2. But up high, the CO2, uh, the radiative transfer, the CO2 becomes optically thin. That is, the radiation can escape freely. And so more CO2, more radiation escapes, and the upper atmosphere cools. So this satellite called SciSat, it was launched in 2003. The expected life was two to five years. Is it still operating, and is there a plan to replace it if needed? It's certainly still operating. It's producing data almost as good as ever. Indeed, because of the long time series, it's uh, more valuable than ever because it's monitoring the change in composition of the atmosphere. And, and of course, as you know, that's what's driving climate change is, is the changes. And we see that and we measure that. And we measure all the Montreal Protocol gases, mo- almost all of them. And so we see that the Montreal Protocol is working, for example. And with respect to replacing the satellite, there's always talk about it, but no action. Peter, your work's not just earthbound. You also study molecular astronomy. What is that, and what are scientists trying to find out? Well, essentially, you can't, well, except for our own solar system, you can't actually sample things outside our solar system. And so if you want to study the composition of stars and now exoplanets, you have to do it by spectroscopy, the same kind of remote sensing that we're using with SISAT. And the astronomers need some help from laboratory spectroscopy to understand what they're looking at. And so we have NASA funding, for example, to look at molecules that are found in hot exoplanets. So exoplanets are planets around other stars, you know, rather than in our own sun. And so We make laboratory measurements and analyze the data to predict uh, and help the astronomers model what they see in exoplanets. And there's now thousands of exoplanets. They're typically hot, and those are the ones that we're providing data for. But, of course, the long-term goal is to find cooler Earth-like exoplanets and get the composition of their atmosphere. And, again, that's all done by spectroscopy, the same kind of measurements that we're making in the Earth's I see a lot of this coming out of Einstein's work on what light really is. Indeed. From the University of Waterloo and the Atmosphere Chemistry Experiment Lab, we've been speaking with Professor Peter Burnath. You can find links to the new science we just talked about in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Peter, thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. From the 1958 Frank Capra film Unchained Goddess. Extremely dangerous questions. Because with our present knowledge, we have no idea what would happen. Even now... Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. Due to our release through factories and automobiles every year of more than six billion tons of carbon dioxide, which helps air absorb heat from the sun, our atmosphere seems to be getting warmer. This is bad? Well, it's been calculated a few degrees rise in the Earth's temperature would melt the polar ice caps.
And if this happens, an inland sea would fill a good portion of the Mississippi Valley. Tourists in glass-bottom boats would be viewing the drowned towers of Miami through 150 feet of tropical water. Foreign weather, we're not only dealing with forces of a far greater variety than even the atomic physicist encounters, but with life itself. Wildfires far beyond normal are coming. The latest summary of fire science comes in a new report from the UN Environmental Program and the Norwegian nonprofit called Grid Arenda. Australians already live the new fiery future. That is where we reached one of the principal authors of this report, one of the leading wildfire experts in the world, Dr. Andrew Sullivan. He leads the Bushfire Behavior and Risks team at CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. From Canberra, Australia, Andrew Sullivan, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hey, Eric, how are you doing? Well, it's tough times around the world, so it's hard to say good, but we have some important news here, I think, from the UNEP report. And I want to go back a year. The casualties and the damages in the Australian summer of 2019-2020, they are still stunning. Thousands of buildings burned, hundreds of people dead, some from smoke, perhaps a billion animals killed. How does that major fire season work into this new report from the United Nations well, it's a, it's a good example of the scale of wildfire events that we're likely to see more of by the end of the century. You know, an unusual forest fire just missed an operating nuclear reactor in South Korea. The Florida panhandle's burning. The Copernicus uh, Satellite Service reports record high fire intensity in South America in the first three months of this year. Is this normal, Andrew? Or when, and when it comes to wildfires, should we expect normal anymore? That's a that's a good question. Um, and in many instances, there probably isn't such a thing as normal. There's average, and that average, I think we can safely say, is changing. Uh, the The expectation of the frequency of wildfires and their severity is, is expected to increase um, under climate change. And by the end of this century, we're expecting the frequency of, of such fires, such devastating fires, to increase by about 30 to 50% uh, over the, the current experience. But there are some surprises in the report. For example, we can't simply say everywhere we'll see more wildfires, can we? No, that's right. The, the 30 to 50% is the global average. So some instances we'll see significant increases in the occurrence of wildfires. Other places may see a decrease in uh, the, the occurrence of wildfires. So it, it's like wildfires themselves, they're rather complex beasts, and the, uh, the impact that we expect of wildfires is, is likely to be very complex. So we can't simply say that everywhere is going to experience more fires. The variability in the climate and the variability in the, in the impact of the climate on vegetation means that the result on wildfires is going to be highly variable as well around the globe. Well, some regions actually get wetter as the climate shifts. You would think that protects them from wildfires, but is that necessarily true? Not, not necessarily true. Because of the variability that we see in the climate, we will have wetter periods which can encourage more growth, but there's also likely to be drier periods that, that follow. So it's possible that those areas that see an average increase in rainfall can still experience dry periods in which that extra growth that occurred during the wetter period 
is now available as fuel. So it, it, it's one of these very, very complex dynamics that, that wildfires sort of uh, are a result of um, in terms of the impact of the climate on the vegetation and the, the impact of the climate on the fire conditions as well. They, they, it is not a very simple dynamic to, to try to understand. But it's true large fires have burned here on Earth for eons. Are we really seeing anything new? It's one of the difficult components that we had in preparing the report was we understand that fire in the landscape is a very common event in the world. And for the most part, the vast majority of those fires that burn freely in the landscape do not cause a concern. They may be accidental, they may be a result of natural ignition such as dry lightning, or they may be intentional. But more than 90% of the fires that occur annually around the globe aren't what we would necessarily call a wildfire because they may be uncontrolled, but they're not necessarily causing a concern for social, economic or ecological reasons. So we wouldn't define them for the purposes of our report as a wildfire. What we defined as wildfires are those free-burning fires in the landscape that do cause a concern, either for, for social impacts, either they're affecting lives and livelihoods, or they're affecting infrastructure, or they may be an environmental impact. That's what we defined as wildfire, and it's a very small percentage of the total number of fires that occur across the globe during the year. Yeah, you know, I'd almost like to add climate change in there. I know there's some debate. I mean, the vegetation grows back. It reabsorbs the carbon that's emitted in the fires, we're told. But sometimes the vegetation is not growing back properly for various reasons. So if you have a giant fire that doesn't affect humans, but let's say it's up in the boreal and it's roaring, might that not change the carbon balance even on the short term? Oh, very definitely. There are lots of examples of fires that... For the most part, nobody would actually call them a concern because they're not spreading very fast and they don't produce flames very high. And in particular, I'm talking here about peat fires, either in the Arctic or, or tropical locations. Those fires spread at centimetres an hour. They're, they're very small, but there's nobody around to do anything about them and they can burn for months and months and months and they can release a huge amount of carbon that would normally have been stored in the organic layers of the soil. Those are the fires that we also want to call wildfires because they do very much cause an environmental concern. And we've seen lots of examples in the past where peat fires, particularly in tropical uh, Southeast Asia, have released huge amounts of particulates into the air and, and created enormous health issues for, for populations that, that are impacted by the smoke that's released by that. So I, I would agree that there are some fires that while not a direct impact on humans as such in terms of their lives and, and livelihoods, but they do have impacts either ecologically or, or in terms of long-term health for many people who are a long, long way from where the fire actually occurs. When your team looks at the global map for increasing wildfire danger, what are the hot spots, so to speak, where populations and governments may have to try to adapt to a new fire regime? There are lots of very specific locations around the, the, the world where the modelling that was done uh, in the UK suggested that the threat of wildfires in the future is going to increase significantly. What came out of that analysis was there are some regions that you would not have previously thought were a danger uh, in terms of wildfire. One of these was the Middle East. Another was India, so the subcontinent, mm. and northern Russia, Siberia. So places like that would not have traditionally been thought to have been a wildfire hotspot, say, 
not like what you'd call Australia or, or uh, Canada or, or the US. But they are increasingly being affected by wildfires and they're happening in those places that don't have a history of dealing with wildfires. So they've got a major hurdle to overcome, not just the impact of the fire itself, but what to do about it. They don't have a history of managing wildfires. So the important thing that came out of the report is that many of these areas that are newly being affected by wildfires can learn a lot from what's been occurring elsewhere in the world. They can also teach other places that have been affected by wildfires. So the, the, the true message that comes out of the report is that there are lessons to be learnt by everybody everywhere. There is no single jurisdiction in the, in the world that solved the problem of wildfires. So the important bit is we need to learn about wildfires and learn to uh, live with wildfires, basically, undertake the steps necessary to reduce the risks as much as possible, but also realise that you cannot reduce that risk to zero you need to be able to deal with the residual risk of wildfires when they do occur. Well, trying to understand what fires do, Andrew Sullivan, you developed a kind of fire test tunnel, the, the Pyrotron. What does that tell us? So the, the Pyrotron is a combustion wind tunnel that allows us to study the behaviour of fires burning through bushfire fuels, what we call bushfire fuels. So this is just natural vegetation that we place inside the tunnel and we can study the, the mechanisms and processes by which these flames propagate through that natural fuel to get a better understanding of the factors that influence the behaviour of fires and develop better understanding of what steps could be done to try to reduce the impact of those fires. Firefighters need to know how fast fires will spread. In fact, we all need to know that in order to guide evacuations. How well can experts predict fire speed these days? Well, I would say we can predict the speed of fires in most vegetation types pretty well. Various places around the world have different ways of doing that. In Australia, we've got what we call fuel-specific fire spread models. So we've got fire spread models for specific fuel types. So we have a grassland fire spread model or a forest fire spread model. And those models, given the nature of fire behaviour and the, the variability both in terms of the inputs that go into determining a fire and the vagaries of fire combustion itself, we've found that we can predict pretty well and, and the measure of pretty well is in the order of about plus or minus 35% of the actual speed. Some of the models do far better than that and there are some models that struggle but it's primarily because we don't actually know the conditions in which the fire is burning. So the uncertainties that are involved in the inputs and the inputs are quite complex. It's the nature of the fuel and it's the weather that's driving it and the specific locations about where that fire actually is. So all of those uncertainties mean that the predictions have some uncertain bounds on them but the nature of the fire uh, is, is pretty well understood and I think we've been able to predict fairly well the, the rate of propagation of, of wildfires and the direction of propagation of wildfires. Even though there have been some terrible fires and a lot of video on the news, people do continue to move into the forest interface zone and suburbs spring up among the trees. Isn't the fire situation a little like coastal flooding? Death and damage is worse because we move into the danger zone. It's certainly one of the factors that's increasing uh, fire risk globally and more generally we would describe that as land use change. So that's both in terms of people moving into areas that were predominantly you know, at risk from fire, but it's also people moving away from rural areas. So fires that do occur are now getting bigger because there's nobody there to do anything about them. 
So that that dynamic of the change in, in populations and the use of land is one of the big factors along with climate change as to why our fire risk is changing so rapidly and expected to change so significantly by the end of the century. Speaking of flooding, eastern Australia just went through incredible floods. Here in BC, we had torrential rains and never-before-seen landslides and floods, along with a big heat dome and the fires. Are there connections between floods and fires? Um, No, that's not my area of, uh, of expertise, but it is one of the other sides of the coin, if you will. So the conditions for widespread conflagration fire is extended rainfall deficit, what we call drought, basically. That preconditions the fuel for ignition and makes it difficult for fires to be put out. The flip side of rainfall deficit is increase in the rainfall. And Australia particularly has a, has a, a long history of a cycle of drought and flooding rains. And there's a, there's a very famous poem by Dorothea McKellar called My Country that has that line, a, a land of drought and flooding rains. We, we have the extremes of those almost continually. You started off about the word average, and I think that's a good angle to take in that we have droughts and we have flooding rains. The average is something in the middle that, that is, is nice, but we don't actually spend a lot of time at the average. We spend a lot of time at either of the extremes. And it's, it's one of those things that in Australia, particularly with the experience I've had, that, that we will have major fire events like we had in 2019, 2020. And very soon after, there will be a change. And quite often, this has been attributed to uh, events like El Nino and La Nina, where we go from the extensive rainfall deficit and droughts across much of the country that can last anywhere between five and um, ten years. And then we'll flip into the flooding rains bit where we will have um, repeated weather cycles that mean that we have low pressure systems that dump lots and lots of rain over the, over the east coast. And I'm sure that sort of experience is, is common in, in other parts of the world as well. From another of your past papers, I learned a key thing, I think. When a bushfire is over, it is far from over. Talk to us about the health impacts and ecological damage that continues long after the flames subside. The interesting thing about fires, in contrast to flood, is that the sphere of influence of a fire is much, much larger than the actual fire itself. So an average fire might might burn, not the average fire, but a significant fire might burn 100,000 hectares, say. But the sphere of influence of the effect of that fire could be 10, 100 times that area in terms of people impacted by the smoke that that fire generated, the damage that that fire has done on uh, the infrastructure that then affects larger um, populations. The scaling up of the impact of a fire is, is quite significant in some places, so even even a small fire can have a huge impact depending on where it is and what it burns. Floods generally only affect the area where the where the where the flood is. It's not one of those phenomena that has a has a huge knock on effect. One of the key things that came out of the UNEP report that we recently published was the health costs associated with wildfires, particularly extensive wildfires, is, is, is runs up into the billions where you're getting lots of people who don't even get to see the flames that are significantly affected by the smoke with um, cardiovascular issues. And as an example, the 2019-20 fire season in Australia had, I think it was like 33 fatalities in 
direct result of the fires, but the fatalities afterwards as a result of the health impacts from the smoke that was released, it was in the order of 450 to 500 people. And so the cost associated with the, the second order health impacts of fires is quite significant. And when you consider places like um, Indonesia, where when they have a delay in the, the wet season arriving and the, the peat fires take hold, it can release huge amounts of particulate matter into the atmosphere that can affect really large areas and those areas happen to have really high populations. So you can you can imagine that the, the health impacts of those sorts of events can be quite significant. The cost is, is, is monumental. Yes, the Indonesian fires went all the way to Singapore and Malaysia, as I recall. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. We're talking about the new report, The Rising Threat of Extraordinary Landscape Fires. Our guest is one of the premier wildfire experts, Dr. Andrew Sullivan from CISRO in Australia. So according to the new report, there will be 30% more extreme fires by 2050 because of climate change. Andrew, is it possible for governments to prepare for that? It's something that they need to prepare for, I think. The first step is understanding what the problem is and how to address it. Now, the there's a significant amount of work that's gone into trying to understand the factors that, that drive the behaviour and occurrence of, of wildfires. The analysis that was presented in that report is based on more than just climate changes. There's, there's elements in there of um, the, the land use change, as I said, there's, there's another factor that, that influences the, the, the risk profile of, of wildfires. But the important bit is that steps can be done to reduce the, the propensity for wildfires breaking out and increase the effectiveness of mitigation steps to try to reduce their impact. So that, thing, that includes things like uh, ignition control measures and fuel management to reduce the, the intensity of fires and as well as um, suppression of fires when they, uh, when they do break out. When fires strike in developed countries, places like California, people may be helped by insurance or government aid, and some manage to rebuild. But what is the situation in less developed regions where people contribute so little to global warming gases? It's a major risk in in developing countries, and fires have been identified as as a major um, problem in those developing countries to try to to reach um, development goals. The impact of fire on social, economic and environmental values in developing countries can have a much lasting effect, much longer lasting effect than they would in developed countries. But that being said, the impacts in developed countries can also be quite significant. And as I said earlier, there's no one country in the world that solved the problem. And the solution to those problems isn't a technological solution in and of itself. It needs to be part of a suite of, of approaches to address the fire problem at all the different um, intersections in the, the, the process. And so that's about communities understanding what their, their fire risk is, understanding the necessity for steps to be put in place to mitigate uh, fire risk, understanding what the, the cost of those mitigation steps are and understanding that there will be a residual risk of fire that they need to be able to deal with. And so that, that goes everything from up from the individual householder right up to government. There's a, there's a continuous chain of responsibility required to be able to address the increasing threat of wildfires around the world. 
2013, I interviewed British Columbia silviculturalist John Betts, and John stressed the need to control forest fuels before the superfires develop rather than spending the money after to put them out. And I see this in the UNAP report. Are we misspending some of our money for fire protection? That's a question to be asked of, of each individual government. Generally speaking, there is a propensity to wait until the fire starts before money is, is spent. And that money is generally spent on suppression of that fire. And for the most part, the effort put into suppression when wildfires are burning at their extreme is not going to have much an effect on the behaviour of that fire until the weather starts to moderate. But you can do a lot more before that fire breaks out to manage the fuels and reduce the hazard that is presented by those fuels such that if a fire was to break out, it'd have, it'd have a lower probability of being a successful break, outbreak and you would increase the effectiveness of the suppression that you did undertake to try to stop that fire when it, when it did start. So there's, there is definitely across the world an imbalance in where investment is. And the recommendation coming out of the report is that there needs to be more money spent in that earlier phase of planning and preparation and reduction of risk before wildfires break out to reduce the impact of those fires. And the impact of those fires is hundreds of orders of magnitude greater than the costs that are spent on managing fires. This is a big report from the UN, and it's a good summary of the best uh, fire science that we know so far. Does it also look at the impacts on wild animals and plants? There is a section in the report that, that looks at that. So the, the report, as you say, is, is quite significant. There's, there's more than 50 authors from around the world, more than 37 organisations, and almost 30 countries uh, contributed to that report. And we use case studies from various parts of the world to look at the various impacts that fires have and various steps that different countries have taken to try to address that. One of the case studies looks at the impact of fires on animals and flora and fauna. The, the complexity that, that, that is involved in that, as, as explained earlier, there's lots of complexity, is that there are many ecosystems around the world that actually require fire to uh, be healthy. So it's not just a matter of excluding fire. The fire needs to be there, but what we need to do is control the sorts of fires that do occur such that ecosystems can continue to function healthily, but they don't have deleterious impacts. And associated with those ecosystems is the fauna um, involved. As we saw with the 2019-20 fire season in Australia, the, the sheer extent of those fires meant that many animals uh, had no refuge from the, the heat of the flames and the, the fatalities involved in the animals was, was quite horrendous uh, in, in magnitude. So what we need to be able to do is, is manage the risk of those fires in such a way that animals have refuge and, and paths of egress out of the path of any fire that does occur to ensure that they've got a way to, to, to survive the fire event. And, and that is very specific to the, each uh, ecosystem around the world. And what are you working on now? Just tell us that as we wrap this up. Well, we've just completed construction of a new lab that houses the Pyrotron that you mentioned earlier, and we're actually next week having a, a virtual opening of, of uh, the facility, which is uh, a big focus for, for me at the moment. But more generally, we're focusing on 
improving our understanding of various aspects of, of fire behaviour and refining the fire spread models that, that we've developed and that are used operationally for, for predicting the spread of fire across the landscape. From CISRO in Australia, we've been speaking with wildfire expert Dr. Andrew Sullivan. You can find links to read the new UNAP report, Wildfire, The Rising Threat of Extraordinary Landscape Fires, in my show blog at ecoshock.org and, of course, at unep.org. Andrew, thank you for sharing your valuable time with us. Thanks, Alex. It's my pleasure. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. In case you doubt that we are in a new time of fire, a study in Science Advances is titled U.S. Fires Become Larger, More Frequent, and More Widespread in the 2000s. It was led by Virginia Iglesias. The authors say, quote, We found compelling evidence that average fire events in regions in the United States are up to four times the size, triple the frequency, and more widespread in the 2000s than in the previous two decades. Moreover, the most extreme fires are also larger, more common, and more likely to co-occur with other extreme fires. This documented shift in burning patterns across most of the country aligns with the palpable change in fire dynamics noted by the media, public, and firefighting officials, end quote. Find a link to that report in my show blog at ecoshock.org, published on Wednesdays. We now see climate change in action. There are so many hot spots and emergencies in living systems. The Arctic is abnormally warm in March 2022. The Svalbard measuring station north of Norway was from 3.9 degrees C to 5.5 degrees C hotter than normal. An early melt is happening. The Arctic sea ice is currently at its fourth lowest state on record. And Arctic sea ice is also very low. Australian coral experts are investigating yet another major die-off in the Great Barrier Reef, the nursery of the sea. Planes are out measuring to find the extent of what could be the sixth major coral bleaching event most in the last 10 years. We're watching a life source flickering out because of hot oceans, because of our emissions. It's a sense of loss. I mean, your future is very uncertain. You know that you're up against one of the most powerful industries in the world, and the industry and the state and federal governments, they're just looking for the money. Mm. And unfortunately, the human cost is, is not on their agenda. Radio Ecoshock. Canadian climate scientist Paul Beckwith makes YouTube videos explaining the latest science and reports on climate change. His specialty is the Arctic, but Paul surveys science all over the world. In mid-March, he caught up with a report from the British institution called Chatham House, You may have heard of Chatham House Rules. People meet in groups, but they're never named. They have an organization with staff. Four of their staff released a report in September 2021 called Climate Change Risks 2021. Their subhead says, The risks are compounding, and without immediate action, the impacts will be devastating. I'm going to read you some of the highlight quotes from that report. Here we go. Any relapse or stasis in emissions reduction policies could lead to a plausible worst case of 7 degrees C of warming by the end of the century, 10% chance, says Chatham House Report. 
unless NDCs, the nationally determined contributions under the Paris Accord, are dramatically increased and policy and delivery mechanisms are revised, many of the impacts described in this research paper are likely to be locked in by 2040 and become so severe they go beyond the limits of what nations can adapt to. If emissions do not come down drastically before 2030, then by 2040, some 3.9 billion people are likely to experience major heat waves, 12 times more than the historic average. By the 2030s, 400 million people globally each year are likely to be exposed to temperatures exceeding the workability threshold. Also by the 2030s, the number of people on the planet exposed to heat stress exceeding the survivability threshold is likely to surpass 10 million a year. To meet global demand, agriculture will need to produce almost 50% more food by 2050. However, yields could decline by 30% in the absence of dramatic emissions reductions. By 2040, the average proportion of global cropland affected by severe drought will likely rise to 32% a year, more than three times the historic average. That is from the Chatham House report called Climate Change Risks 2021. I will put a link in my blog at ecoshock.org. Last week, the world lost a great campaigner. I first met Lafcadio Cortizi when he was a forest campaigner for Greenpeace International in the early 1990s. He was born an American, a fan of the Grateful Dead. Lafcadio moved with his young family to Indonesia. He adopted Indonesian dress and learned to speak the language of Bahasa. Lafcadio loved the jungles, jungle creatures, from Sumatra through Borneo to Papua New Guinea. Cortese worked tirelessly to save those forests for Rainforest Action Network, Forest Ethics, and most recently for the Canadian-based organization Canopy. He was an irrepressible force. Lafcadio loved to laugh, to dance, to infect people with joy. Everyone knew when Lafcadio was not just in the room, but in the building. Without any signs of illness, in his late fifties, Lafcadio went to bed and passed in his sleep. It is a complete shock to his family, his workmates, and everyone who knew him. There is a Facebook page in memory of Lafcadio Cortese. It rapidly filled up with photos and memories from environmentalists all over the world, many inspired by him. Rest in peace, friend. At this time, the war in Ukraine continues its pitiless pace of destruction, both of lives and property. While North Americans pull off the masks and party, it's the end of the pandemic. But a new wave is just beginning in China. South Korea, so admired for its control of the virus in 2020, just reported over 600,000 new cases in a single day. Virus death rates in Hong Kong are the highest in the world. This is mostly the super-transmitter variation called BA2. 
that can reinfect people who had previous versions of COVID. Fortunately, we know a new virus in China could never spread to the rest of the world. Oh, wait. There are no special controls on planes coming in from Asia. Most countries have dropped testing requirements for entry. Global trade continues. The virus is increasing and increasing in Europe and especially in Great Britain. Of course, another wave will come. There are millions of people still unvaccinated, and all vaccine protection is beginning to wane. Seniors need a fourth shot. We are letting our guard down, even as the enemy approaches. As you heard in this program, and almost every week on Radio EcoShock, the grand long-term threat and immediate source of more crisis is climate change. Through war, economic troubles, starvation, or plagues, we just keep burning fossil fuels and tearing down nature. We could still put out the fossil fire before it consumes our only home. Let's do that. Stop exploring for more oil and gas. Stop your governments allowing that. Stop financing coal and close that industry down. Slash your own energy use and expectations. Demand action from governments at every level, including the local. Join and support climate action groups. Show your strength. And most of all, believe that we can. I'm Alex Smith. A real thank you for listening and caring about this world. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. Ecoshock.org. World Violinists for Ukraine.